Hello, my true crime friends, angels, and Web Sleuths members. My name is Trisha Griffith. Welcome to Web Sleuths Radio Podcast. We're here today, I'm so excited, with Ethan Brown. He's the author of critically acclaimed nonfiction books, including the 2016 release of Murder in the Bayou, Who Killed the Women Known as the Jeff Davis Eight. He's also an executive producer of the Showtime five-part documentary series of the same name that premiered this September. Welcome to Webster's Radio Podcast, Ethan. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the Jeff Davis 8 case, or the Jennings 8, very popular subject on WebSleuths.com. In fact, we have a uh, whole forum dedicated to it in the serial killer forum, although there's a question whether it's really a serial killer or not. We'll get into that mm-hmm. a bit later. But today, I'd like to talk about the material included in your book and in the Showtime miniseries documentary. For those of us who don't know of the case, haven't read your book, give us the best overview that you can. Although there's so much to this case, it's going to be hard to contain it in a few minutes, but but give it your best shot. Sure. So from 2005 to 2009, the bodies of eight women were found in Jeff Davis Parish, Louisiana, and Acadia Parish, Louisiana, which is the next door parish to Jeff Davis. These women were found in desolate areas such as back dirt roads, canals, near crawfish ponds, rice fields. They were just sort of dumped out there uh, and left. In six of the eight cases, the cause of death is suspected asphyxia. In two of the cases, victims number two and victims number five, they were stabbed to death. And both of those victims, by the way, were the sole African-American victims out of the eight. That was Ernestine Patterson and Laconia Muggy Brown. Now, they're called the Jeff Davis eight sometimes because of the parish in which they lived. Jefferson Davis Parish, but they were from a very small place in Jeff Davis Parish called Jennings, which is the parish seat of Jeff Davis Parish. Jennings only has about 10,000 people in the entire town, and they were from a very small part of this small town called South Jennings, which is really only a few thousand people or less. They were socially connected to one another. They were friends. They knew each other from South Jennings. They were in a very similar milieu in South Jennings, which is folks who struggle with substance use disorder. They also engaged in kind of survival sex work, basically to eat, to have a roof over your head, And they were all connected to a man named Frankie Richard, who is a very, this might sound like an odd word, but sort of storied figure in the Jefferson Davis Parish underworld. He's an older man. Um, He has been in the Jeff Davis Parish underworld for decades as both a pimp and a drug dealer. Wow. So they, they all knew each other through this, this network. But I want to I go to the book now and a quote that you used from sure. an investigative uh, journalist and civil rights leader. Her name was Ida B. Wells, and she wrote, those who commit murders write the reports. Now, right. 
She wrote those words over a century ago. But right. today, as we are unfortunately finding out, those words are true in some cases. Right. Tell us how that, that basically kind of encapsulates the whole book, the whole findings of the murder in the bayou. Right. I use the quote really in part because there is such profound law enforcement misconduct in this case and very credible allegations of actual law enforcement involvement in this case. Um, and I think you can't understand this case, unfortunately, without understanding those two things. Do you believe that this was the work of a serial killer, these eight murders? I absolutely do not believe that this case is the work of a serial killer. Do you believe law enforcement are the participants of, if not all, at least some of the murders? I would say that law enforcement is involved in these murders, um, meaning that there are law enforcement members who have participated in the act of covering them up and have participated in very serious acts like destruction of evidence in these cases. And those are some pretty serious charges, and again, we will get to that in a little bit. And we're talking about what police department is it? The jurisdiction largely of the Jefferson Davis Parish Sheriff's Office, as well as uh, the Jennings Police Department. Let's back up to the beginning. What mm -hmm. in the world would make you think one day, I'm going to just investigate these murders and write a book. So it's an interesting question. Um, in 2009, I had published a book with Henry Holt uh, about a murder-suicide case in New Orleans that had occurred right after Katrina involving an Iraq war veteran who had kind of spiraled out and killed his girlfriend and then jumped off the roof of a French Quarter hotel and left a note in his pocket uh, instructing the police that he had killed his girlfriend. And when they arrived there, um, his girlfriend was actually cut up into various parts and placed around the apartment. Um, that book was, was just an incredible kind of labor of love for me. I love doing the book. The case was fascinating, as you can probably guess from hearing a short description of it. But I had come to a place for a number of reasons where I really wanted to be out of the media entirely. I would worked as an editor, as an investigative reporter, and I went to work as an investigator at a law office in New Orleans mm -hmm. that handled death penalty only cases. In 2010, uh, this is an, my my work with this office began in early 2010. I had left the media in late 2009. Um, uh, in 2010, while working for this law office, I had a case uh, that took me from New Orleans to Calcasieu Parish, Louisiana. Now, Calcasieu Parish is a neighboring parish of Jeff Davis Parish. It is just to the west of Jeff Davis. Uh, I was driving back and forth on I-10, the major highway in this area from New Orleans, Calcasieu Parish, and I was seeing billboards uh, with reward money for the Jeff Davis 8. Now, I had literally no idea who the Jeff Davis 8 were, I knew nothing about the case, just saw billboards uh, featuring the faces of eight women. 
with an $85,000 reward. And I thought, huh, this is really strange and interesting. Here's a billboard with the faces of eight dead women along I-10, sort of intermingled with other billboards that you see in this area. Billboards for Cajun food, billboards for like your local news station. Huh, this is so odd and interesting. Then in my Calcasieu Parish case, um, it involved parts of the drug underworld that were very, I, that I would learn later, I should clarify, were very similar to the Jeff Davis Parish underworld. And I was really fascinated by this Calcasieu Parish world. Mm-hmm. It was like, I hope I don't sound crude, like fascinating to me, particularly as someone, my, my first book was about the crack era in Queens in the 1980s. And it was fascinating to me that crack cocaine had taken root in a place like Calcasieu Parish, which is like very white, very rural. And I was like, wow, here I am in this world of like crack and drug trafficking, but in a very white, conservative, rural part of Louisiana. How strange and interesting. Mm-hmm. So I just became like really interested in this, in this Calcasieu Parish world. And then kind of at the same time in 2010, Campbell Robertson with the New York Times wrote a beautiful piece about the Jeff Davis aid case that was in their national section. Um, I will never forget it because it was both beautifully written and it had an incredible image of the dump site uh, where Kristen Gary Lopez was dumped in 2007. It was just like a sort of swamp gothic kind of photograph. And it was so striking, both in terms of the writing and in terms of the image. Mm-hmm. And then the piece itself, you know, just explained the cases in the way that I just explained them. You know, eight bodies found from 2005 to 2009. But there was one thing that really leapt out at me, which was beyond the photograph and writing, which was Campbell had like one sentence or two sentences about the chief criminal investigator at the sheriff's office. The chief investigator had purchased a vehicle that was suspected of being used in one of the homicides, purchased this vehicle from an inmate, washed it, and then resold it. Then he was investigated by the state ethics board, Mm -hmm. fined in this incident, and the outcome of this was him being promoted by the sheriff himself oh, to run the evidence room. Oh, dear. And I thought, holy cow, this is wild. Not only wild in the actual act, but the impunity involved. Holy, wow, this is incredible. Like, something is going on here that isn't right. And I think this was also reflected in Campbell's piece, and he discusses this in the series. Uh, you know, he says, you know, there there was a sense, particularly from the mothers, right, of these women, that something was not right in Jeff Davis Parish, that it was beyond the homicide. Something was deeply at – something was deeply rotting here. And that was what really hooked me in. And I thought, you know, I should look at this as something that 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 could be a way for me to one day – rejoin the media it sounds like a weird thing to say but like 
you know, I was really enjoying my work in the capital defense world. But I thought, you know, maybe one day I would go back to writing and editing. And uh, in 2011, I just basically packed my stuff up and decided to do a two-week investigative trip to Jeff Davis Parish with nothing in mind, no book, no article, nothing, just with the idea of let's have a look at this, you know, see what's there, what's interesting. And I went out there for two weeks. I ended up meeting most of the families. And this was like, I get asked a lot about this and people find this really strange, but this is for me, not strange, which is I just basically went around and knocked on people's doors. Mm-hmm. Like I knocked on the doors of Kristen Gary Lopez's family, knocked on the doors of victim number eight, Nicole Gillery's family, and just introduced myself as like, you know, I'm interested in this. Mm-hmm. I want to hear what you have to say about it. It wasn't like, it was very like, might seem like an odd word, sort of free form. It was like, I just want to listen to you. Mm-hmm. And these uh, visits were so profound in terms of me getting a love for the people of Jeff Davis Parish mm-hmm. and me getting a love for the family members. And what's so fascinating is that, you know, this is 2011, it will be going on, you know, nine years ago, uh, is that the intimacy and and the beauty of these visits, I think, is reflected really, really well, almost eerily well in the actual series. The filmmaker interviews with the families, I think, have a very similar feel, like mm-hmm. very similar, almost identical. So, you know, I'm, I'm having these family visits and they're just really moving and profound. Uh, and then one thing in particular happens. It's really a span of less than 24 hours. I met uh, a man who was a drug dealer on the south side of Jennings. His name was David Desitel. Uh, his nickname was Bowlegs because he had rickets as a child, mm-hmm. and he was also shot at one point and limped. So it's kind of a combination, getting shot and rickets. Okay. And Bowlegs dated two to three of the Jeff Davis aides. I met Bowlegs in South Jennings one night. It was around sundown. Next morning, I was in my hotel room. Phone rings. Uh, Bowlegs was just murdered. Like, what? I was with this person like seven hours ago. Wow. What do you mean Bowlegs is murdered? Uh, you no, know, he's, he's dead. He was murdered in his house. Okay. I, I get in my car, drive to his house, which was on a street in South Jennings, this really small street called Hobart Street. And he, again, he had been killed in his house. And I get there. There's no crime scene set up, no perimeter, no crime scene tape, nothing. People are walking in and out of the crime scene, removing items. <laughs> I just thought this was like completely insane. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, to really put it mildly, I'd never seen anything like this in my life, either as a you know, capital defense investigator or as an investigative reporter. I just was stunned. And then that afternoon, I met with Barbara Guillory, uh, Nicole Guillory, victim number eight. I also met with a former Jennings police officer, and I asked like very 
like without knowing the answer really at this point because it's so early in my interest in this case like what's going on here is this normal Mm -hmm. or did i just stumble upon some freak thing that just happened to happen while i was here and both of them said particularly barbara guillory like no 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 this is totally normal here like this sort of thing happens all the time you know welcome to jennings and i really thought and this might sound like a cliche or theatrical or that I'm making this up and I'm really not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And it's really something that has never happened in any of my cases within that 24 hour period. Really? I thought this is a case that is just mind blowing in terms of what, could be here like like nothing i've ever seen before and and i should really do something about it immediately so i returning home at that point to new orleans i pitched a piece about the jeff davis aid case to gq magazine very fortunately an editor had just arrived there from the new york times who was very interested in true crime he accepted the pitch um, immediately. And even though I was, you know, in the capital defense world at this point, I still was not, you know, back in the media. Like I, I took this on as kind of like a hobbyist project, which I think ended up working out really well for the piece um, because I had really no deadline. So like I just spent a lot of time going back and forth between New Orleans, Jeff Davis Parish, talking to people. And more importantly, Louisiana has an astoundingly good public records act that I had learned how to utilize in my capital defense work. Can, can, I, so inter- I, can, can I interrupt you? Because that, sure. that's one of the things I want to talk about. I want yeah. people to know that they do have options. Every uh, state has some sort of open yeah. records. And you can do what Ethan Brown did and go down and get these documents. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that procedure and how it helped you so much. Yeah, it helped me incredibly. I mean, I think I may have even thanked the Public Records Act in my book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I also have a very expansive view of of public records uh, when I work on these cases, Mm -hmm. meaning that, like, I'm not like, hey, give me the homicide file of Whitney Dubois. You know, or, hey, give me the homicide file on Laconia Brown. I'm interested in public records as a way of, particularly in communities like this that are so small and heavily criminalized, where there's so much contact with the criminal justice system. Like, I'm interested in using public records as a way to, like, to, to create a picture of people socially and who their social networks are. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean necessarily I, I want the homicide file of this or that. It's, it's like I want to know every possible thing about these eight women and all of their contacts with the criminal justice system. I also want to know every possible thing about their family, their friends, their associates, and all of their contacts. And I want to pull every possible public record that I can about all of this. And I also want to pull records, you know, even things like property records. Right. Um, I want to pull things like incident reports, calls for service, 
so I, I have this really, really like completely expansive view of public records work. And that's what I engaged in for about two years uh, when I was working on this as a GQ piece. In late, sorry, like the fall of 2013, uh, I'd been working on it for about two years. Again, mostly as a kind of hobbyist sort of uh, project. Um, but I had a lot of public records, like thousands of pages and like a pretty good sense of these women socially and their networks and a, a good, a decent sense of the case. But the piece wasn't moving really at GQ. And then something extraordinary happened, like out of the blue, which was HBO dropped their True Detective teasers, oh. which were not trailers, but like 15 second teasers. Mm -hmm. Even these tiny little teasers, I thought, I thought oh, my goodness, uh, this is the same part of Louisiana. And without knowing anything about the show, just seeing the world that I had been in for two years, you know, announced as coming to HBO, I thought, oh, my God, like, this is incredible. What a weird, crazy coincidence. This piece needs to move immediately. Fortunately, my editor at GQ had actually received a job offer right at that time to go to medium.com, which at that point really wanted to do extremely ambitious long-form journalism. My editor said he would take the piece with him because he had worked on it with me for two years. And the, the long-form Jeff Davis 8 piece that was the basis for my book was published in January of 2014, um, right when True Detective season one premiered. Mm -hmm. And there was just an enormous response both to the piece itself, um, which is sort of the bones of the book, and then also an enormous internet response with people theorizing that True Detective was based on this case. Nick Pizzolatto, the creator of True Detective, is from Calcasieu Parish. And I think True Detective is very much a reflection of like his life and his experiences and like the milieu that he knows from growing up there. And yes, as you were about to say, there was a crazy law enforcement response to the piece mm -hmm. um, because the piece really delved into a lot of the misconduct that had been teased in pieces like Campbell Robertson's article, but not explored, mm -hmm. um, like the chief investigator purchasing a truck that may have been used in one of the homicides, washing it and reselling it. Um, and uh, locally, uh, the Jennings Daily News, which is the paper of record out there, they had two full weekends uh, devoted to attacks on me mm -hmm. from the DA, from the sheriff, and the city PD. So it was a remarkable uh, response. Yeah, big effort. The, yeah, to the piece. And then the sheriff himself, uh, Ivy Woods, um, posted this really odd and disconcerting message about me on the actual sheriff's office website mm -hmm. that I felt like was placing me in a kind of most wanted context. What did it say? <laughs> what did it say? It said, like, basically, if I could summarize it, like, here's this troublemaker coming in from out of town and, you know, stirring up, <laughs> st 
stirring the pot mm-hmm. uh, in, in our little parish. It was, if you've ever read or seen clips of Bull Connor, you know, in the 60s, responding to, like, civil rights workers coming mm-hmm. in from the north, it had that precise that flavor to it. Let's get into the cases here because sure. look, I, on the surface, you have eight women. Uh, they mm-hmm. all know the same pimp drug dealer. They mm-hmm. all have uh, an addiction issue. They've all had to survive by doing sex work, and they all kind right. of know each other, and they're all dead. You feel law enforcement is somehow involved. So just expound a little bit on that, if you will. Sure. So it's really interesting. Like, uh, yes, there's no justice in these cases, right? We're almost 15 years out from the first one. Um but one thing that got lost, especially early on in the coverage of this case and the mm-hmm. thinking about it, is a couple things. Um, one being victim number two, Ernestine Patterson, not only were charges brought in her case, but indictments were brought by the DA's office. Mm-hmm. So two men were indicted for the homicide of Ernestine Patterson. Right? Um, that case collapses for reasons that are unknown. I got a hold of Ernestine's uh, homicide file, you know, through the same kind of public records work. And I discussed this in the series, like the cops in this case have actually done a good job in terms of talking to people. And they had people who appeared to have firsthand accounts of the men in this case, um, for example, uh, carrying a garbage bag filled with what looked like a human body and blood dripping out of the garbage bag and the garbage bag being set upon a porch and then washed off. Mm -hmm. They had things like that. Um, Again, the the case disappears. Why? Um, In the case of victim number three, Kristen Lopez, victim right after Ernestine, arrest warrants are drawn up for Frankie Richard and his goddaughter Hannah Connor. Now Frankie long... is the is the uh, the pimp. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So arrest warrants are drawn up for Frankie and his goddaughter, and a very longtime associate of both the women and Frankie named Tracy Chasson. Um, and yet that case crumbles as well really quickly. They didn't even get an indictment in that one. But then you look at the Kristen file, which I've seen. And Tracy Chasson offers a very compelling, seemingly credible account of Kristen's homicide. For reasons that are unclear, she recants. And here's where one of the pieces of misconduct fits in. So uh, Tracy Chasson says, and it's a, it's a very long statement, and I, I don't, I'll try to summarize it very quickly. Um, she basically says that she is in a Chevy Silverado with Kristen, Frankie, and some others. Uh, there is a dispute of some kind, mm-hmm. and Frankie kills Kristen, right? Okay. The Chevy Silverado is the vehicle that was purchased <gasps> by the chief investigator washed and then resold then uh, uh, a police officer named jesse ewing 
that same year, this is 2007, takes two recorded statements from two female inmates who say that Hannah Connor, and again, this is the goddaughter of Frankie Richard, who I is, mentioned a moment ago. Who who's, is the pimp. Uh, yeah, and who had arrest warrants drawn up in this case, mm-hmm. just like Frankie. Uh, these two female inmates say that Hannah confessed to them that Frankie and Warren Gary, uh, the chief investigator, are longtime friends and associates, and they conspired to destroy evidence in this case. Jesse Ewing, the police officer who takes these recorded statements, panics when he takes them. He is very aware of the history of corruption and misconduct in this parish. He takes them to the Lake Charles office of the FBI. Lake Charles is in Calcasieu Parish. And instead of the FBI initiating some kind of investigation into Warren Gary and Frankie Richard, they initiated an investigation into Jesse Ewing. Good. Uh, No, come on. And Jesse (sighs) Ewing is pursued for, uh, I think, malfeasance in office number of other charges, and I think it ends up getting pleaded down to just malfeasance, and he is fired. His entire law enforcement career is finished. Because he tried to do the right thing. Yes, I I believe he was a whistleblower, effectively, Mm -hmm. in this case. So, you know, that's one piece but of what, many other... How, let, me sorry, back, let me back up and let's talk mm-hmm. about Jesse for just a moment. What sure. did they have on him to uh, to get a charge against him? What did he do? What was the, the problem? I, I believe the malfeasance uh, stems from him taking evidence, which is these recorded statements, out of the PD and bringing them to the FBI, well, sort of like break, breaking the chain of custody on, okay. on these pieces of evidence. Almost like, it's almost like also, a technicality, but go ahead. It, yeah, it is. And they had also claimed at one point that he, he had inappropriately touched one or two of the female inmates who we took statements from. Those charges were dropped. We talked about the one whistleblower who lost his job. He, he uh, took statements uh, that implicated law enforcement took those statements to the FBI in turn the uh, law enforcement agencies and people were not investigated he was and he lost right, his exactly. uh, he he lost everything for doing that there were other whistleblowers weren't there yeah my goodness there's there's quite a few whistleblowers in this case so the same year which is 2007 that Jesse Ewing took those witness statements to the FBI there was a nurse at the jail named Nina Rave Um, She raised the issue, which is a very, very long-standing issue at the jail that we can discuss if you're interested Mm -hmm, (laughs) Uh, in this this discussion of women being sexually assaulted at the jail. She took this to the warden at the time, Terry Guillory. Um, She claims that she got no response. One of the victims, uh, one of the rape victims, uh, ends up filing a federal civil rights lawsuit mm-hmm. based on these sexual assaults. And then, incredibly, there is an investigation into the nurse. Oh, <laughs> my Lord, are you kidding um, me? No, no. And this time, the uh, yeah, so the investigation is conducted by the Louisiana State Police. 
there are some allegations that I still to this day don't really understand where they're saying that she was fabricating or I don't even I don't even understand this working in some way that was inappropriate mm -hmm. with the plaintiff's attorneys for this woman who had been raped mm -hmm. to support her case. So she's deeply investigated by the LSP, that's Louisiana State Police. Um, her career, just like Ewing's, goes in the toilet. Um, she actually had all kinds of problems, like financial problems, like losing her home, bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the LSP just dropped the case, and there's that's it, like nothing, oh, um, really in the end. But it doesn't matter because her, her life is ruined. It is ruined, yeah, because she did the um, right thing. There's there's another whistleblower uh, who comes in later in 2014, 2015. Uh, he is a member of the Lake Arthur Police Department. Lake Arthur is just a few miles away from Jennings and Jeff Davis Parish. Um, at this point, the warden of the Jeff Davis Parish Jail, Terry Guillory, mm -hmm. has left that position to work at the Lake Arthur Police Department. Uh, this police officer's name is Raymond Mott. He is working under Terry Guillory uh, and the chief of police, who I believe is named Mark Intel, is his last name. He's also deceased. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he begins to see a bizarre pattern of um, I'm trying to think of a way to describe this. Basically, Terry Guillory telling him, don't arrest certain people for drug offenses. And Mott is like, what? Like, <laughs> what do you mean? And then at one point, according to Mod, Guillory says, hey, just knock off your drug arrests entirely. Oh, Lord. And Mod is just like, what is, you know, mm -hmm. what do you, like, what do you mean? Like, and again, I say this not as a supporter of the drug war, obviously, but it's just like, what a strange sort of edict to come down. Yeah, exactly. Um, in, a, in a police department. Um, and then... Uh, he, meaning Mott, has a call for service out to the home of Crystal Shea Benoit Zeno, victim number six. He arrives there, and there's like a lot of panic when he arrives. He's like, why are these people so afraid of cops? This is very strange. Right. And then Crystal Shea Benoit Zeno's sister says to him, Terry Guillory killed my sister. Oh, man. And Mott is just like, what? Like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And he brings this back to Terry Guillory. And again, according to Mott, uh, Guillory says, uh, you know, most of what you hear, and I believe he said something like 90% or 95% of what you hear about me and the Jeff Davis 8 is true. <laughs> oh, He admits wow. it. Damn. He's, again, according to Mott. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mott is just sort of reeling about this. And without getting into a totally other wild story, but unfortunately this case has too many of them, um, Mott at the time was working as an informant 
for the FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was working with an FBI agent in the Lafayette office. Uh, he was informing on the Ku Klux Klan in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Mott had stupidly gone to a Klan slash immigration rally, I believe is in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And when he came back to Louisiana, I think felt quite bad about it and then went to the FBI mm-hmm. and worked as an informant for the FBI and and uh, a reporter for Vice magazine, actually, who uh, has covered the Klan forever, uh, was able to actually confirm that this was a real thing. Indeed, he he informed on the Klan and indeed he had actually decimated the Klan's ranks mm-hmm. in Louisiana. So. Mott begins going to the FBI uh, with information about Terry Guillory and the information that I just mentioned. And he's already a a known, uh, reliable source of of information, obviously. Yeah, I would say not known because nobody knew. Well, that's true, right. At the time, right. But he was a reliable source of information, Mm -hmm. definitely. Exactly right for the FBI. And he goes to the FBI with information about Guillory. And then very soon afterward a photograph of him at the original rally that I mentioned, this Klan rally, mm-hmm. is leaked to the media. And actually be, it becomes this enormous social media storm as well. Um, oh, look, here's a racist cop in Louisiana <sighs> at a Klan rally, right? Um, Mott loses his job and sort of joins the ranks of Nina Rave and Ewing. Uh, of people who had blown the whistle on alleged misconduct and then found themselves terminated. This is beyond. We could do a series of shows just on the whistleblowers. I want to walk a a fine line here. Mm -hmm. Like I would never, ever want to be interpreted. I, I would never want anything that I say to be interpreted as telling or convincing or leaning on people not to cooperate with right. law enforcement. If they, if, if they feel that they have information about this case in any way, right, mm-hmm. that's helpful. I would never, ever want to be uh, seen, you know, uh, as, as, or, or, you know, or, or interpreted in any way as, as like telling people, no, 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 don't do that. Don't don't go to law enforcement what you have. Like that's that's an individual decision, obviously, but I right. never want to be associated with with telling people don't do that. Because it's 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 incredibly important, it right? Is, like this is the way that we That's that how we solve we, crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And exactly. and other crimes, but nobody wants to say don't go to the police. Everybody wants everyone to cooperate so we can solve crime. Exactly. But, but all I can say is basically, damn, uh, these people tried to do the right thing, and this is what right. happened. Ethan Brown, I could I could go on with you all afternoon. <laughs> go watch the Showtime series, Murder in the Bayou, right. Who Killed the Women Known as the Jeff Davis Eight. It is on Showtime. It is a five-part documentary series. And in addition, come on, people, you need to read Ethan Brown's book, author. It's the same name. Uh, the uh, murder in the bayou. And if you have a true crime person in your family, this is a great book to get. Ethan yeah. Brown, 
we've got to have you on again. We've got to have a follow-up to this. So Thank you. Oh, of course. Anytime. I love it. And Please. I, I invite yeah. you to come to WebSleuths, WebSleuths.com. We do have uh, the Jennings 8 in the serial killer forum, but of course there's a lot of discussion how this might not be a serial killer case. And as you right. point out very eloquently, it doesn't look like it is. So Ethan Brown, thank you for coming on WebSleuths Radio Podcast. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. You yes. bet. Bye-bye. To hear the extended interview I do with Ethan Brown, where we do talk about the whistleblower in the jail and the sexual assaults on inmates, join us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash radio podcast, and you can join there for $5 a month, and the money raised helps to continue this podcast and help with expenses at websleuths.com as well. So thank you very much, everybody.